This podcast episode is supported by Prudential. If you're at home thinking about your financial plan, so are we. Prudential helps one in seven Americans with their financial needs. That's over 25 million people. With over 90 years of investment experience, our thousands of financial professionals can help with secure video chat or on the phone. We make it easy for you with online tools, e-signatures, and no medical exam life insurance. Plan for better days. Go to Prudential.com or talk to an advisor. It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Across the United States, school is starting. It's a school year unlike any other. Some districts are holding in-person classes while others are opting for remote learning. Janice Jackson is CEO of Chicago Public Schools, which is starting with kids learning at home. She says it's a unique time to address long-standing inequities in education. We're creating a brand new way of educating students through, through our remote learning structure. Let us not repeat the sins of the past. If we're creating a brand new system and all of us are sick and tired of the old system with all the inherent uh, structural racism in it, we shouldn't create a new system that perpetuates that. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations from the Aspen Institute, which drives change through dialogue, leadership, and action to help solve our greatest challenges. Today's discussion is a collaboration between the Institute's Education and Society Program and Aspen Ideas Now. In this historic moment when the country is grappling with the crises of the pandemic and social unrest around racism, kids are trying to find their footing. From kindergartners to high school students, dealing with unpredictability and big changes in routine can be tough. The challenges for educators are also immense, but some say it's a teachable moment when long-established problems can be fixed. At Chicago Public Schools, the third largest district in the country, students have been learning about equity and restorative practices even before the death of George Floyd. Students are taught Chicago's history of police brutality, student activism is thriving, and kids are encouraged to get involved with civics. With COVID, the district sees an opportunity to identify inequities and address them. If they aren't fixed, CEO Janice Jackson fears the outcome. Otherwise, when we're on the other side of this, I think we're going to see gaps in, in, in student achievement um, that are much more wide than what we currently see today. With today's crises bringing into focus large disparities in education, how can educators avoid returning to the status quo? Janice Jackson joins Linda Darling-Hammond for a conversation about equity in education. Darling-Hammond serves as president of the California State Board of Education. Ross Wiener leads the talk. He's the executive director of the Education and Society Program at the Aspen Institute. Here's Ross Wiener. Linda and Janice, thank you so much for joining this conversation today. You both exercise tremendous responsibility for public education systems, and that gives you unique perspective on what young people in this country have been going through for the last six months. So I want to start our conversation by asking you to set a little bit of context for us. What, what have you experienced as leaders? What have you observed uh, young people going through, both in terms of adversity and in terms of some of the resilience and the way that they've been activated over these months. So Linda, I'd like to start with you and just helping us understand the context in California. Well, of course, it's been a traumatic time for everyone. And um, you know, for young people, there's been all of the unpredictability, the sort of lack of stability that you get from being physically in school. Uh, we have the uh, added immediate uh, 
impetus of climate change and that is bringing fires all across the state right now. So, you know, for young people, the uh, vision of the future, the, you know, sense of stability that you get from kind of knowing how things are going to be and having all of the routines and so on around you are sh shaken right now. Um, the experiences that different kids are having are extremely different. So for affluent kids uh, who are home with parents who often can stay home with them, uh, you know, they may be, you know, uh, fighting about who gets to use the internet where, but the general environment, you know, is feeling uh, much more safe than for kids in many communities. Los Angeles is a hot spot right here in San Jose and Oakland where, you know, families are losing employment, where COVID rates are extremely high, where the, um, you know, uh, effects on health uh, of family members, et cetera, are very uh, stark. Uh, and you then add on to that the digital divide that we uh, had going on when we started the pandemic that is changing, and I'll talk about that later. But, you know, you had families without internet uh, or connectivity, as well as kids who couldn't get online for school. You had parents who couldn't get online for telehealth or for benefits or for job searches or for Instacart so that, you know, grandma wouldn't have to go to the grocery store and be exposed to the virus. So the inequalities in the experiences are also extremely stark. And in California, we've been mobilizing to a very intense degree around how to address both the general pandemic and the inequalities that have surfaced as a result. Thanks, Linda. And yeah. so, yeah, Janice, let me turn to you and just ask you to characterize, what have you seen in Chicago? Yeah, well, I think it's important to note the time and space that our kids are coming of age in. Um, this is a historic time for all the reasons that Linda pointed out in her um, introductory remarks. Um, they're grappling with the global pandemic, a pandemic that I think caught all of us uh, off guard. Um, I can't imagine what it's like to, to be a young person um, during this time. But I also think, um, uh, likewise, the, the response to uh, the death of George Floyd and the civil unrest that has occurred as a result of that is particularly in interesting. And I think that um, while it has added um, more layers of maybe uh, stress and for some people trauma, I also welcome it. Um, here in Chicago, we've seen a lot of student activism at work and at play. Um, students doing a lot of the things that we've been teaching them in our schools around um, making sure that their voice matters, speaking up around civic issues that impact their daily lives. And we saw people do that in, in pretty extraordinary ways back in June. Um, with that said, there there have also been some unintended outcomes, uh, negative outcomes of that, um, particularly here in Chicago with um, some of the looting. And, you know, we still grapple with another um, uh, epidemic of violence here in the city. So there's just a lot to unpack. Um, and more importantly, a lot for our students to, to deal with. I think the district has done a good job responding um, where we can. Um, we're uniquely positioned to do quite a few things. Um, first, addressing the needs around food insecurity for many of our students, um, but also using all of the outreach, whether it's through surveys or through remote learning or other touch points with students to really uh, 
reform and improve upon how we educate them uh, starting this fall, how we interact with them, what kind of engagement they have to their teachers and other related professionals in the building. So I think there's just a lot to, to unpack. What I would like to underscore from Linda's point is really this, this concern around the disparity. Um, this is the thing that keeps me up at night. I feel like it's the thing that people aren't talking about enough, but I worry about what the impact will be five years from now, 10 years from now. And I think school systems have a, a, a awesome responsibility uh, to, to address this. So really appreciate those reflections and the context it creates for this conversation because as you both noted, there are huge inequities that have been with us for a long time, for the whole history of our country, and yet they are right in front of us, and our students are living them and experiencing them so viscerally right now. So I do want to shift our conversation towards how then we take advantage of this moment to address these topics and these dynamics really explicitly in our schools. And I want to read you something that uh, a statement that we issued from the Education and Society program, I along with my two uh, senior colleagues um, in June, and we said COVID-19 and the protests against police brutality and systemic racism are the most important teachable moments of a generation. Students will feel the hypocrisy viscerally if education ignores these issues, and we will miss an opportunity to lay the foundation for truth and reconciliation. So. I want to ask you first, Janice, as the CEO of Chicago Public Schools, how are you thinking about tapping into what has activated students over these months and making that really what it is that they are talking about and learning about as they return to school? Yeah. Well, first of all, CPS has always been a leader in this space, um, which which gives us a little bit of a head start on this. Um, you know, we've talked before in other meetings about some of the uh, curricular materials that our Office of Social Science and Civic Engagement has produced for our students. And, you know, I like to tell people we've been talking about equity and um, restore, restorative practices before it was popular to do so. Um, and I realize we have a lot of advantages here in Chicago. Um, we, you know, it's a very liberal city. Um, you know, sometimes things are messy, but it allows for um, the kind of discourse and engagement that I think makes it easier for students' voices to be lifted up and heard. Um, so what you'll see from us is more of what we've done, um, but at an accelerated pace, obviously. So we've created curriculum packages around uh, you know, police brutality here in Chicago. We had a we have a pretty ugly past with um, Commander Burge, who used to lead our pu police station. I mean, our police uh, commission here in Chicago. And you know, we we reconciled on that. And one of the components of that was to teach that history in our schools. It's a part of the curriculum in CPS. We also uh, produced the say their names uh, materials after the death of George Floyd, which really built on a curriculum uh, set of materials we distributed after the death of Freddie Gray. So I say all that to say we have continued to provide our teachers with resources um, so that they can spend time engaging with students. They don't have to spend time finding articles and materials and we'll continue to do that. I also think some of the work that we've started around civics engagement 
which goes beyond learning the three branches of government and vote and voting, but really talks about how do you actively participate in the um, governance structure around you. We are encouraging our students to do that. If you look at our student um, code of conduct, we have at the front students' rights and responsibilities, where we start by explaining to them, here are your rights. This is how you, um, you know, advocate for redress if you feel that your rights have been violated. And I don't think that we oftentimes think about that when we're when we're in the school system. The adults are in charge. We make the rules. We enforce the rules. So I think um, making sure that we understand that schools are a microcosm of the world and the degree to which we can create the kind of equity that we want to see in our schools, um, the, the degree that we can do that in our schools, we have a better chance of our kids fighting for that, um, you know, in, in everyday life. The last point I'll make is we're gearing up for the start of school and I've been meeting with teachers, um, administrators, et cetera, across the district. And really the charge that I have been giving to them is this, we're creating a brand new way of educating students through, through our remote learning structure. Let us not repeat the sins of the past. If we're creating a brand new system and all of us are sick and tired of the old system with all the inherent uh, structural racism in it, we shouldn't create a new system that perpetuates that. So that means if we know these inequities exist or lack of resources exist in particular communities, we have to start there in order to make sure that, that things are equitable. Otherwise, when we're on the other side of this, I think we're gonna see gaps in, in, in student achievement um, that are much more wide than what we currently see today. So Janice, I uh, really appreciate those reflections. And I wanna name two things that I wanna come back to. One, this concept, when you name the rights and responsibilities, it's this concept of students as citizens of their school to practice being citizens of our society and taking their place. So I wanna make sure we come back to that and to this idea of new practices, this new moment that we're in really unlocks potential for not recreating some of the inequities of the past. So let's make sure we come back to that. But Linda, I wanna ask you just to help our listeners understand the concept of a teachable moment, why that's so important to um, really take stock of and, and, and notice, and, and what's some advice for the education system to take good advantage of this teachable moment that we're all living through? Well, first of all, I love the fact that you're labeling this as a teachable moment because a lot of people have been labeling this as a moment of learning loss, um, and kids are always learning. We are all, as human beings, always learning. What are we learning? And how do we learn in this moment what it gives us the opportunity uh, most to learn? So uh, the uh, authenticity of the uh, learning experiences that kids have are extremely important right now. Authentic to the you know, pain and distress of the moment, but to the opportunity to make social change, uh, which, you know, I went, I came of age in the 60s. So, you know, those were my teachable moments in, this, in the same way. And I remember when I was in college and the, they closed down the college in the spring of uh, 70. Um, and I learned more in that period of time about, you know, the social context, the way to make social change and a variety of other things that have been life lessons. And kids are also in that position right now. So uh, I want to just say uh, hats off to Janice and the Chicago Public Schools. When we put together our first guidance in California around distance learning and the importance of having kids engage authentically in the moment 
engage in project-based learning that is relevant to the issues and the topics of the time. Uh, one of the first resources we grabbed was one from Chicago Public Schools and put it in the California guidance uh, so that it could really inform some of the work. Uh, we um, certainly have had, um, you know, in the governor's statements, uh, encouragement for people to uh, make their voices heard, to engage in peaceful protests, uh, lots of activity around uh, reorienting the way in which policing is thought about and um, handled both in schools and in, um, in the general society. Uh, a youth task force that's been set up at the state level to guide us through a way of thinking about restorative practice. Now, California has been uh, for many years moving towards uh, eliminating um, discriminatory discipline, putting it in the accountability system, uh, holding schools accountable for reducing suspensions, increasing restorative practices, et cetera. But this has given an even bigger uh, leverage um, on those issues uh, and really an opportunity for communities to think about uh, how they are supporting kids in schools. Uh, you've got places like UCLA Community School and others that have used the opportunity to have kids in their studies online now, right? Um, to take up a project-based learning around COVID itself. And in that particular school, and they're not alone, they really explored the ways in which COVID was impacting communities of color that they belong to, that their families are part of, uh, what was going on health-wise, um, in terms of employment, in terms of you know, the economy, uh, et cetera, et cetera, really studying that and using that as part of their own learning, their shared learning, and then sharing it out uh, with public officials and others about you know, the, the impacts of the experience. So I think this is a moment for authenticity in learning and for you know, taking up these issues that have been with us and really uh, moving them to resolutions that are more productive uh, than, than you know, had been the case previously. Like we've had the issue of the digital divide, which uh, you mentioned and Janice did as well. Uh, this is the time to just solve that. It frankly doesn't take a lot of money to solve the digital divide. If you look at the two trillion or so dollars that have been put out in the recovery, uh, the amount needed to close the digital divide nationwide is about six billion. It's way less than you know a, a percent. You could just handle it. And we've in California not only called on philanthropy and they've been terrific, you know, Google and T-Mobile and Apple have stepped up and we've got a million uh, iPods with hotspots going out right now. We've had hundreds of thousands. Uh, we put $5 billion from the federal and state money into this issue of both digital divide closing and learning loss. So at the other end of this, we should have handled that. We should be done with that issue and moving on to others. And so it's both a matter of um, mobilizing parents and community members uh, and also recognizing the ways in which students as citizens of their school and citizens of their community can add their voices to this process in a way that um, brings them into the populace, so to speak. You know, it's part of growing up. 
but also sets the tone for what the next uh, chapter will be, what the next generation will be. And, you know, I know that that $6 billion figure can sound like a lot of money, and that is a, a lot of money, but we need to muster the will to find it. We spend over $700 billion every year on public education in this country, and it is overdue to recognize that broadband access is a utility. You need it to access society, and right now you need it to access just basic learning uh, so kudos to both of you, Janice. I don't know if you want to add. I, I know yeah. that Chicago has been incredibly proactive uh, on this front as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really appreciate um, Linda's remarks around it's time to fix it now. I think I would count our response to the digital divide as a positive thing that has re, uh, resulted um, out of COVID. And what it looks like here in Chicago is now we have a four-year commitment to provide high-speed broadband internet free of charge to 100,000 families. Um, and that's about a third of our students in the district. And we believe that that's gonna give us the runway to not only support them during this remote learning phase, but beyond that. Um, I think about a, a story uh, anecdote from a principal towards the end of the year when we were kind of reflecting um, this spring. And he was you know, talking about when we were distributing devices to schools and kind of how principals were holding on to that and worried about getting it back. And then once he, you know, he did what the district asked him to do, which is provide students with the devices. And then a couple of weeks into remote learning, seeing how his students were responding, the type of education that uh, was, um, you know, allowed for in an environment like that, it just dawned on him, like, we should have been doing this all along. And I think that's how I feel, even as a school superintendent, I think I like to think of myself as innovative and always a cut ahead. But on this one, we, we just weren't there. And so now we will be there um, coupled with our uh, curriculum initiative, which is going to be an online student-facing curriculum from preschool all the way through high school. I think a lot of pieces are coming together um, and they're, they're, it's happening faster than we anticipated because of COVID. And so I think it's important during this time to reflect on those wins as well. I know we've lost a lot, but there are also some things we're gaining as a result. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, and I want to acknowledge that is a technical challenge and I want to move to the adaptive challenges, but I also want to acknowledge that students see it when we don't, when we don't address the technical challenges. Uh, you know, I, in, 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 in prior work, um, I did a lot of visiting to uh, public schools, especially in the rural South and saw the state of facilities and, and, and just recognize deeply that students then come to understand how society values their education. And I think it's the same with access to the internet right now. They see that everybody who's accessing what society has to offer has access to the internet. And if we don't provide that to everybody, it's a strong signal uh, that we're, we're unwilling and we don't value their learning enough. So again, kudos to you and the leaders that you're working with for, for stepping up. And I do think we're gonna, we're gonna make some big advances on this front uh, out of this crisis. But, but I also, want to turn to the adaptive challenges because Linda, you acknowledged that uh, students are experiencing a lot of pain and, and distress and they need an opportunity to process that and to put that in context. And we need spaces for healing as well. And we do this, we're going to need to do this in a context of intense polarization in our country, especially on issues of race. And so uh, Janice, I wanna turn back to you because Linda, you gave a shout out to Janice and Chicago Public Schools about the materials they're putting out. And I, I wanna ask you, Janice, talk about um, any of those materials, but I wanna name 
the say their names guidance that you produced for teachers about how to enter these conversations productively. So could you share a little bit about that? Yeah, first, I appreciate that question because the, the best advice I can give people is that you have to be trained and approach this appropriately. And I think sometimes teachers avoid these conversations, avoid controversial issues in class because they don't want to be uncomfortable. And what I've heard from teachers, if I can make this a, a bit more topical, is they're even more afraid to do that in, in a remote environment because you don't have the benefit of observing body language and intervening and the technology, you know, is intimidating. But what I would say to them is number one, it is a moral imperative. We have to have these conversations and teachers are important in, in students development and it's the safest place for them to have these conversations um, inside of a classroom. So I want to encourage teachers to do that. I also want teachers to really reframe the problem students are our students are digital natives they're not afraid of the computers and the devices the way that we are and so embrace that and understand that you can do this work but for cps and i'm a former social studies teacher so i have to you know share my bias at the top I think civics education is one of the most important things we can teach our students. In fact, when I became the uh, CEO, um, the chief education officer, I'm sorry, we revised uh, the vision for Chicago public schools uh, and talked about preparing kids for college and careers. And we also included civic life because there is no way in order to help people regain power and empower themselves without talking about how to engage um, with the people who are making decisions for them. And so I see this as a time to enter that if you've been hesitant to do it. Uh, and there are a lot of great resources. Uh, school districts are producing great resources um, and there's a lot out on the internet. The last thing I would say to school superintendents and other leaders at the local and state level is you have to provide training um, for this as well. And so in Chicago Public Schools, we just launched our di uh, district equity website, which people can go on there and look at all of our tools. They are open source. We wanted to make this stuff available, not just for CPS teachers, but for anybody who wants to utilize them. But I think you have to complement this with an aggressive and robust training program in a network for teachers to go back to when they find themselves struggling with how to set up these types of conversations um, in, in units in their classrooms. And Linda, just want to turn to you uh, for context, either from California or just even in your, uh, you know, broad knowledge of, of education practice. Um, what makes this kind of work that you taking advantage of these teachable moments possible what makes it hard just to, what do we need to focus on to, to get this right um i think uh what makes it possible in part is um both giving teachers tools as janice was describing and permission um you know we've kind of been in an era of um of, of an approach to standards-based instruction you know, tied to high stakes, you know, accountability and so where people thought their job was to march through the standards, you know, standard 3.1, 3.2, et cetera. And this is a moment where, first of all, you know, if you understand the standards, the common core standards, for example, they really do speak to connecting, you know, the knowledge to real world, uh, authentic um, examples and, and uh, events, et cetera. Uh, so it, 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 we have to rethink the way we approach, you know, the traditional curriculum, and it's and it's there to be done. Uh, we got to give permission. We got to give people tools to do it, uh, and uh, we've got to give some incentives. 
So uh, just on the point of civics, which I know Janice is passionate about. The last time we were together, Janice, you spoke to the civics question passionately. I loved it. Uh, in California, we're creating a seal of civic engagement. So as part of our college and career index in the accountability system, it will become, a, I hope, a college career and civic readiness index. There will be, along with the seal of biliteracy, which, you know, recognizes kids for becoming part of the global world and being multilingual people and multicultural uh, people, uh, we will also have a seal of civic engagement that, you know, will be part of what we're encouraging um, schools to provide and kids to engage in, and it will be action civics, you know, getting involved in the issues that affect your community, affect your school. Uh, and so I think all of those things help. The other thing is getting examples out there. I think about, you know, in this time of distance learning, the schools that have had kids showing up, engaging, uh, you know, where there's hardly been a break in the flow of learning have been the schools that had kids engaged in, you know, deep and thoughtful project work around, you know, which brought in the math and the science and the social studies and the writing and the uh, reading and, and the English language arts, uh, but that did it in ways that were really powerful. So for one example, in Oakland, there was a school that was trying to figure out how to get kids to school safely because they're in a very busy urban area where there are a lot of problems getting across the highway and getting across the street and getting kids in and there are safety issues around the neighborhoods and there are safety issues around the streets. So they had done a whole big project around how are we going to make our getting to school and being in school a safe thing. And they continued that project when the, um, you know, distance learning began and they presented their findings to the Oakland City Council and got some action around the things that will be in place when we do come back to school physically. So I think those kinds of examples also uh, allow us to support kids in that civic engagement, uh, in their learning, uh, in all the academic areas, and in their, you know, seeing themselves as efficacious and knowing that they can make a difference. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I also think that there are some other areas that we should capitalize on. Um, for example, um, interest in science. Um, I know anytime I have an opportunity to talk to students, I'm, you know, especially encouraging our um, young women and underrepresented uh, people from underrepresented groups to think about these career fields. I think people are paying more attention. They have a I think a, a much better understanding of things than I did um, as a child and access to more information. And so I see this as another opportunity as we expand our STEM programming, our computer science programming to really get more students of color um, and more girls involved in the STEM fields. Um, so I just wanted to add that uh, to the discussion. I just want to add to Janice's point that, you know, the amount of science and math learning that one can do in this moment of COVID is really quite extraordinary. I find myself reading the medical journals every day and, you know, talking to other members of my family and others uh, who are students about the science of this moment. Um, it's a great opportunity to get kids involved in, you know, all of those topics, the math of this moment exponential functions and what does it take to bend the curve and how steep is the slope in your county and your community 
So um, this is a moment where we can really uh, get kids to apply math and science in ways that will make it so meaningful. So I was just thinking about how the, um, the inventor of the next vaccine that we will yeah. need or the epidemiologist who will help guide us through the next pandemic, maybe going to Chicago public schools right now yeah. uh, and thinking about how to make sure we're activating them with right seeing these challenges out in the world, but recognizing that education actually is a way to uh, enable themselves to, to address these challenges and to be the leaders uh, who can help us see through to a better future. So really appreciate just taking a moment to recognize the teachable moments are just, they are, uh, we, they are incredibly ripe right now in so many ways. This podcast episode is supported by Prudential. If you're at home thinking about your financial plan, so are we. Prudential helps one in seven Americans with their financial needs. That's over 25 million people. With over 90 years of investment experience, our thousands of financial professionals can help with secure video chat or on the phone. We make it easy for you with online tools, e-signatures, and no medical exam life insurance. Plan for better days. Go to Prudential.com or talk to an advisor. So I want to ask for some more personal reflection. I think one of the things that is both a huge resource and sometimes a challenge in public education is that we all went through public education and so it shaped, or we all went through formal education, it shaped our views about um, what, what it is, what's appropriate, what's needed. Um, uh, and, and so I want to ask uh, each of you, if you would, to reflect on when you first saw a teachable moment taken advantage of in your formal education, uh, I'll just want to acknowledge that for me, it was actually, it wasn't really until I was in college that all the time I was learning K through 12, it felt like I was learning because that's what I was asked to do to go to the next level in my learning. And it was all about deferred uh, gratification about yeah. what it would open up later. Yeah. And when I was in college, I remember reading texts and being in discussions where I said, oh my God, this learning is so deeply meaningful to me right now about who I am as a person. And I thought, why, maybe we could have, maybe I could have done some of this learning earlier. So I'm curious, and I'll turn to you first, Janice, when was your first experience of that? And what does it teach you? Wow. Well, I mean, I could unpack that question all day. Um, and I think our experiences are probably very similar. Um, you know, I went to Chicago public schools and, and got a, a really good education. I went to a neighborhood school and I was in a gifted program for high school. And I think that, you know, my teachers did a great job, but I also think it was very traditional in its approach. And I didn't recognize some of these connections um, in, in a school setting. Now, I did have the advantage of uh, being raised by, you know, uh, my father in particular, who was very involved and engaged in, you know, politics and uh, social events and things like that. So there was a lot of discussion about that around the, the dinner table, but not so much in school. And the thing that stands out to me is maybe a missed opportunity, I recall, is um, Rodney King, that situation. I was in um, eighth grade when that happened. 
and it was a big deal. You know, it was just like everything else. It was all over the news. Of course, we were just entering the 24 news cycle that we're in now. But, you know, it was all over the news. People talked about it. It came on every day. Um, my dad talked about it a lot, had a lot of strong issues about it. Um, we had zero discussion about it at school. Zero. And I went to an all-black school. Um, you know, we had Black History Month assemblies. We talked about these things. I would characterize it as a pro-black school. There was zero discussion about this in school. Um, and, and then I remember on the flip side of that, you know, being in college, and this was around the time when the O.J. Simpson verdict came out, um, and, and that was discussed in class. And I remember feeling um, both passionate but also ill-equipped to have that discussion in the classroom because it was so new and so raw. So I was just responding, um, probably in a very emotional manner. There was a lot of debate about it. But I say all that to say there were some missed opportunities in my um, educational experience to really hone that. Now, the one place where we did have that outlet, uh, which again goes back to, to my views around civic civics education, is in my debate um, after school class. That is where we talked about the things that nobody Nobody wanted to talk about. We debated issues. Um, we had to learn um, the other side's argument and be able to articulate that. Um, but that happened in an after-school program that was run for a couple of months throughout the school year. Uh, but it was very absent from the, the education during the, the traditional day. Now, 20, 30 years later in CPS, that's no longer the case. Our teachers have the permission that Linda talked about earlier, and a lot of our materials are organized to engender these types of conversations. But I would have to say, you know, when I was in eighth grade 30 years ago, that was not the case. Thank you. Um, and it feels like it, we're, we're so lucky to have you having gone through the system and to be able to reflect on it and now leading uh, that same system and being able to build on the foundation, but create even more yeah. opportunities. Uh, Linda, let me just ask you the same question. What was your first experience of an authentic teachable moment in your formal education? And, and what does it leave you thinking about? Well, like Janice, I think I had a pretty uh, good public school education that was very traditional. And so the teachable moments, uh, were not often grabbed upon, but when I went off to college, uh, 1969, uh, that was when, you know, uh, campuses all over the country were blowing up in New Haven where I was in school. Bobby Seale was on trial um, right there in New Haven. There was a lot of social activism. I was involved in it. And of course, at a moment in time, um, I was at Yale University, they closed the campus in the spring. People could go home. I, those of us who stayed, engaged in a sit-in and teach-in movement. Um, and that was where we really started to get, you know, all of the issues unpacked. And those were the teachable moments that were uh, most uh, taken uh, advantage of. Um, one of the results of that era, in addition to the you know, civil rights marches and uh, marches about the war in Vietnam and the issues that were going on in terms of uh, racial injustice, the assassinations that had occurred in that decade of time. Uh, so if we think we're in a, a bad era now, you know, it does help to think back to some of the things that our country has gone through. But one result was the creation of one of the first Afro-American studies departments uh, on that campus. Uh, Yale and Stanford actually want to compete for that distinction, and I've been at both places and been part of that debate, <laughs> but I will tell you that that actually also created a curriculum pathway for many of us, including myself, that was 
uh, gave many more opportunities for the kind of you know study and um, depth of understanding and engagement that you know had previously uh, been lacking. Uh, one of the reasons why you know the ethnic studies movement is so valuable and and important today uh, because it does give both a way to locate uh, the broader narrative to create a better understanding of the history of the country and the moments that we are um, in today and um, to you know, create the, the settings and context and permission and training uh, that Janice was talking about for the conversations that we need to be having. So I wanna stick on that uh, around the settings and contexts that are needed. And I wanna think about what uh, the adults who are responsible for the system, even those outside the classroom, um, what are the lessons we need to take? What are the teachable moments we have to take advantage of? And I want to ask you each, and I'll start with you, Linda, to, to speak about what needs to be true about this school year to enable students to fully engage uh, in school. What does the science of learning and development tell us about the conditions that have to be in place, the school climate that really uh, enables students to invest the most in their learning? Well, I think there's a few things. One is that, of course, from the science of learning and development, we know that uh, learning is social and emotional, as well as academic and cognitive, and that those things are interrelated, that you, know, you learn most effectively when you uh, are in a situation with trusting relationships, where you feel safe, uh, where your mind is not literally, you know, affected by toxic stress and anxiety. Uh, and kids are coming um, to the educational experience um, with a lot of needs that need to be addressed with social and emotional supports, as well as explicit instruction that helps them figure out how to be aware of their feelings and how to manage those and also how to um, identify resources and supports they need so that they can be uh, accessed for them. So I think one of the things that's front and center is you know, making social and emotional learning uh, a very central part of the process. Another thing is that the learning they have to engage in must be authentic. That is, it has to be true to the moment. It has to allow them to deal with the things that are present in their lives, whether it's you know, associated with the public health crisis we have, uh, the, you know, the economic crisis, the political issues that are going on, the civil rights um, crisis that is you know, kind of front and center, uh, and just their own personal experiences. So you know, this is the moment to kind of move the curriculum uh, into a space where we use the academic disciplines to enable people to pursue the um, questions and challenges and inquiries that are meaningful to them. Uh, it has to be um, supportive of uh, accelerated progress. This is not a moment to sort of say we're going to give everyone uh, a test to determine who's above and below the cut point and then label them in ways that um, actually connote stigma to a group of kids and further demoralize them. But it is a time to kind of assess where kids are in their learning trajectories and then accelerate progress for them, uh, which will also mean more personalized um, you know, learning experiences in many cases uh, so that um, you know, kids are 
making progress um, in, in the areas particularly of you know, uh, literacy and quantitative reasoning on which we build a lot of other skills. So the challenges for, for education to become more uh, focused on the needs of kids and connected to their families uh, as well uh, are many and schools are doing uh, very extraordinary work in many, many cases in this regard. So we may see some ways of working uh, at the other end of this that are um, different than what we came in with, that are more personalized, that are more authentic, that are more connected to family, um, you know, that are more cognizant of the social emotional environment than, than was the case before. Yeah. And Janice, I know, yeah, social emotional learning and just identity and, and school climate has been a huge focus for you in Chicago. So yeah. yeah, just building on that, I think I, I would go back to what I said at the top of this is that we cannot create a system that reproduces the status quo. Um, if people uh, listen to this, that's the biggest takeaway. And, and figuring out what that means in your local context, what that means for the things that are within your sphere of influence, I think that matters a lot. So a few things that jump out at me around this is, number one, um, we start in this new system doing the things that the research tells us works. That uh, starts with high expectations for all students. So if we're creating a brand new system, let us not start that system by still walking in with the same uh, different expectations that we have. And we know that there's a lot of information out there about the uh, culture of low expectations, in particular for African-American children. So that would be my first point. With that, I think for teachers, really understanding that it's not about more work or giving kids work or being on computer screens in order to be engaged, challenging people to really think about the quality of the work and the quality of the task that we're asking students to do. I think the fact that teachers have to be, um, they have to revisit the things that they've been asking students to do for the past few years. They have to be much more discerning about what matters in the work that they're assigning, what is practice, what is going to advance their learning. Um, I, I would encourage teachers to really think about that every single day as they are designing lesson plans and to choose quality over quantity. Um, I think going back to uh, guarding against reproducing the status quo, we have to think about resource distribution and allocation. We can't go back to the same old systems and formulas and expect a different outcome. We have to prioritize the students who don't have the things that they need, especially in a, work, in a home workspace. We have spent a lot of time talking about devices and internet connectivity, which are extremely important, um, but we're now pivoting to start fo focusing more on what does the home environment look like? Because the likelihood of our students being in a remote setting um, you know, for this entire academic year, you know, it's not out of the question yet. We don't know what's going to happen with COVID. And for far too many of our students, the circumstances that they're learning in are not conducive to learning. So we have to address that. And I feel like that's our next step forward. Um, it would be a totally missed opportunity. And I would say to teachers, you are actually making your work harder if you do not capitalize on the current events. The kids care about it. They want to talk about it. And we really have an opportunity to, to engage them in ways, but also capture them and reinforce the skills embedded in those standards that we talked about earlier that they need in order to be successful. And then the last point that I would say is we really have to use staff 
and community-based resources more strategically. And I would challenge school superintendents in this area, myself included, it's the thing I'm working on the most. We have to be the quarterbacks around that. We have to decide how do we leverage and marshal these resources in order to help our students. One of the things that I have observed is that everybody's trying to do the same thing. Everybody wants to get the computers. Everybody wants to deal with the internet. Everybody wants to help kids do their work. And I don't think that's the appropriate way to approach this. Who is best situated to support the SEL needs? Who is best situated to help with engagement? Who is best situated to really understand some of these other issues that are happening in the family um, in particular that are related to poverty? And how do we help solve for some of those things so that the students have less stress in their lives and parents have less stress in their lives? So I say that like it's easy, it is incredibly hard. Um, we're lucky here in Chicago, so many people wanna help from the philanthropic community to the uh, post-secondary institutions, et cetera. But I would say school systems, have to be the quarterbacks in that um, in that scenario, and we have to make sure we're leveraging those resources and using them effectively. And we have uh, been talking about how can mayors and governors step up to take some of the load off the shoulders of educators, so educators can focus on some of the things you talked about that they are uniquely uh, capable of doing, creating that environment of trust, uh, creating those relationships that unlock uh, students' really ability to invest in their learning. Um, but schools are the hub. They are the place that have the closest relationship with children and families. And so how do we take advantage of that to make sure that uh, the other parts of government agencies are um, stepping up to provide resources where they're uniquely capable of addressing some of the needs as well? I, I want to um, close us out by asking each of you to envision uh, what what will be true about schools, about the student experience, about our public education systems, uh, if we have taken advantage of this teachable moment in the best way we can? In five years, what will we be saying uh, about what's true about our schools then that, that uh, is, is something that's better and richer than, than what we have now? Wow. Linda, let me start with you on that. <laughs> well, I'm going to pick up where Janice left off with the, you know, way in which resources are coming into the schools. Uh, you know, we um, live in a society where um, there's a great disparity in uh, family income. And on that, we have typically piled a great disparity in school finance and school funding, right? Uh, Illinois is just beginning to come out of being, I think, one of the worst states in that regard. California still are. <laughs> but California is just a few years ahead of you. And we, you know, adopted a much more um, progressive formula where more money goes according to the needs of pupils. And in this moment of the COVID experience, we've doubled down on that. Uh, and so the $5 billion, the, the governor allocated from the CARES Act funds more to schools than was allocated only for schools. He pulled from the other part of that budget. Um, and so, and that was allocated 81% of that money based on student needs. And we are really looking forward at how to even more thoughtfully be sure that the resources go where they are most needed, including, you know, strengthening our capacity to offer community school wraparound services, uh, in ways that were occasionally present in the past and we hope to get to be a regular part of the system in the future. I think in addition to that, if, if we 
really, you know, sort of double down on the opportunities that we've got. You know, we will have closed the digital divide. I think we may do that uh, this, this calendar year in California. We will have students and teachers who are proficient with technology in ways that wasn't true before. So lots and lots of kids, for example, who didn't have uh, access to computers after school, you know, 20, 30% of kids, depending on which statistics you use, uh, will now have that capacity to use for all of their life and schoolwork, not only in school, but out of school. They will become the technologists of the future. You know, we have a big push on computer science as well. We are a technology uh, based economy in California. Uh, the kids who will now have access to that, uh, uh, black and brown kids who were really very underrepresented in the past, uh, will now have a, a, an equitable sort of playing field. Teachers who didn't know how to use technology in their teaching uh, will have made huge strides in being able to do that in ways that are very um, innovative. One of the things that excites me in um, places like Long Beach is they're using the technology right now such that any kid who wants to be in the classroom of uh, some of the teachers who are known for their great um, teaching in certain areas can go into those classrooms. So they have some classes being taught that 2,000 kids are participating in, right? Uh, and other teachers can go and watch those teachers teach. And so they're using the distance learning also as a way to spread knowledge and to um, share professional development and help teachers learn from each other. So we should keep, we should hold on to that. We shouldn't lose that. Um, many places are really trying to double down on, you know, connecting what um, kids are doing to their authentic uh, learning experiences. And we're encouraging that through our guidance from the state um, agencies, um, encouraging formative assessment that it moves kids along uh, a learning progression rather than uh, summative assessment carrying so much weight that it's really all about labeling rather than you know, um, growing and uh, progressing. I hope we'll hold on to that. We've got amazing work going on on parent relationships because of the requirements that uh, there be this outreach and the fact that many, many schools had started it before there were any requirements. Let's hold on to that. A lot of parents say that they are more in touch with the schools than they've ever been before. Uh, so we want to you know, continue that kind of relationship, uh, that kind of personalization. Uh, and you know, people are finally loosening up on the master schedule. You know, the master schedule is the master of all possibilities in the high school. That's why they call it the master schedule. And it's been kind of in this gridlock since literally the 1920s. And people are thinking about how to use time in different ways, how to group kids and adults in different ways, more personalized relationship-based kinds of um, uh, organizations where kids are getting mentor groups and they're getting advisories and the uh, Classes are being offered in ways that um, don't keep teachers in a factory model. There's more time for teacher collaboration. There's more time for students pursuing certain kinds of project work and so on. Now, we haven't figured it yet, but the fact that we've kind of loosened the cage and can imagine new ways of using time and putting people together, uh, we need to hold on to that. 
and invent the next system of education. Yeah. So I just love how much how much possibility uh, you see in this moment, whether it's closing the digital divide, um, sort of uh, picking our teachers who are absolutely the best lecturers at different topics at different grades and freeing up more teacher time uh, for small group discussions, for really interacting with students, for that kind of personalization and differentiation, or just totally rethinking high school because we've known that it's uh, too much of a straitjacket for students who are really ready to be out in the world. So just appreciate all of the different ways that actually responding to this crisis really could renew the promise of, of public education. So thank you, Linda. Janice, I want to give you the last word on what do you see as the, the hopeful things coming out of this? Yeah. Well, first, I want to double down on many of the things that Linda pointed out. Um, you know, her insight is, is right on point. I think the resource piece has to be um, addressed in the next five years. I hope that um, people see the value of public education. Um, I think that in some regards that has been renewed um, with some of the discussion around when schools open and the connection to the economy. And I think we as educators have to push harder and extend that so that people really see we are very much a part of the fabric of this, this country and very much a part of the, the economy and, and its effectiveness here in this country. So how do we capitalize on that and ensure that public education is funded, not just at an adequate level, but at a level that really puts the United States ahead um, of, of other countries. I think the other thing that um, I heard is how do we capitalize on parent engagement? I've heard the same things. I know personally, um, I'm even more engaged because you have to follow up and there's just, there are many more touch points. And I think in particular in some of our communities where parental engagement was difficult, we have to capitalize on that and extend that into whatever a post COVID educational system looks like. So I see a lot of value in that. Um, I also think this notion of how we assess learning, we have to address that. Um, I think that people have been given a lot of uh, flexibility uh, because of uh, COVID and the school closures, but not sure what to do with that. So you brought up the master schedule, but there are countless other examples of places where we're really encouraging people to think outside of the box. And I think assessment is one of those places. We have to focus more on curriculum and the what, what kids are actually learning and doing in classes every day and, and stop, you know, engaging in designing everything around a, a summative assessment that they're going to take at some point in time in, in their high school careers. And so I think if we do things right and take advantage of this moment, um, we will see a stronger and more balanced assessment system on the other side of this. And then the last um, thing um, that I will say is that social emotional learning will be seen as essential um, and necessary in order to advance the instructional core. I know that there are still places where people have to make a case for the value of SEL or people think SEL is just fluffy stuff. And I used to be in that camp. I come from that camp where, you know, I didn't know why we need to do this. I think now more than ever, uh, the value uh, of making sure that our students are healthy uh, physically and emotionally is so critically important. And it's critically important to any kind of educational system that is going to thrive, um, not just during a pandemic, but, but on the other side of this. So I think if we get things right, we're going to see a system that not only does a better job educating students, and that'll be um, apparent in, in academic outcomes, but where students are, they feel more whole um, and they feel that they have been, I guess, um, 
poured into and that they have developed as a result of their educational experience in our institutions. Well, what a, a, a hopeful, inspiring uh, vision to end this conversation on. I, I just want to express my deep appreciation to each of you really for your public service um, and for joining this conversation today. You know, Janice, you just talked about one thing you hope for is people coming out of this with a greater appreciation of what public education helps us create as a society. And I think for anybody listening to this conversation, they can't help but come away with uh, appreciation for the, the professionalism, the yeah. wisdom, the insight, and just the deep commitment that each of you represent as a resource for public education and how you uh, reflect just the millions of adults who have dedicated their lives uh, to, to children's lives being better and filled with opportunity and to creating a better future for our country and our world. So thank you to both of you uh, for this great conversation. Thank you, Ross. Enjoyed it greatly. Janice Jackson is the CEO of the Chicago Public Schools. She's part of the Institute's Urban Superintendents Network and has spoken at the Aspen Ideas Festival and hosted the Aspen Challenge in Chicago. Linda Darling-Hammond is president of the California State Board of Education and president and CEO of Learning Policy Institute. She was co-chair of the Institute's National Commission on Social, Emotional, and Academic Development. Ross Wiener is a vice president at the Aspen Institute and executive director of the Education and Society Program. Their conversation was held August 21st. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin. It was programmed by Aspen Ideas Now and the Aspen Institute's Education and Society Program. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me. This podcast episode is supported by Prudential. If you're at home thinking about your financial plan, so are we. Prudential helps one in seven Americans with their financial needs. That's over 25 million people. With over 90 years of investment experience, our thousands of financial professionals can help with secure video chat or on the phone. We make it easy for you with online tools, e-signatures, and no medical exam life insurance. Plan for better days. Go to Prudential.com or talk to an advisor.